This is Effed Up, a conversational podcast about injustice, true crime, and rosé. Season one of Effed Up is a story about the corruption in one state's crime lab. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains opinions that are our own. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. I'm Priya Hubbard. I'm Jessica Borges. And I'm Keith Burke. Where are you typing? I'm typing my password so I can get back oh. to my computer. <laughs> I was like, I'm in the script. I don't see you. Like, I don't see like, you in my script. <laughs> I don't have a script. <laughs> they that's still what, won't give me a script. That's going to be the, the first song from... Oh, fuck. What is our band called? Oh, um... Pick crew. Luminol Pick Crew. Luminol Pick Crew. Garage Band. That's the We program. are the Garage Band. <laughs> yes, and our first song is going to be I Don't See You in My Script. <laughs> uh, Subtitle, I Don't Have a Script. <laughs> okay, anyway, speaking of music, it's probably weird to be a podcast shilling for another podcast, but Ear Hustle has music from the prisoners on it in every episode. It's not stuff you can download on iTunes or whatever. So there's this one song I was listening to and it was, it's become my anthem for this episode and the next couple of episodes because it's so poignant and so apropos of what we're going to be talking about. But Keith, you said something really poignant in our first episode. Wow, that is what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, surprisingly, you actually did. That's the one. <laughs> it's been all downhill from there. Notice I haven't quoted you from any other episode. <laughs> so... What you said is a really good quote to kick off our episode. And you said this about Greg Taylor and all the years that he spent in prison. You said, your life, you're frozen at that moment that this happened, but the world still moves around you. You're just not part of it. That's what you said. Sounds deep. So I'm just going to break down what the song is. It's Lost in Time by Greg Sayers and Maserati E. And it was featured in the third season of Ear Hustle. It's called Bird Bass in a Lockbox. And we're going to link to it. But going back to what you said in that first episode, one of the lyrics in that song is, because time stands still in here while the world flies right on by, which is essentially what you said. And during our research, we found that a lot of other people said this. Like, that is the common conception. Well, yeah. I mean, think about it. Your entire world is your cell. Yeah. You know, like a lot of these people, they come out and they say they don't don't know anything like about the internet or whatever or things like that because it just wasn't a part of their world. It was a part of the world that everyone else is living in. Yeah. And that's what we're going to get into in this episode. Mm. So it's going to be another uplifting one. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, it's a comedy today, guys. (laughs) the (laughs) why. All right. So let's recap a bit. We've been focusing on a specific time period in North Carolina regarding exonerees and wrongfully accused people whose wrongful imprisonments or wrongful accusations were due primarily to the North Carolina SPI Crime Lab. And more specifically, we've been focusing on the events leading up to and during the audit of the SPI Crime Lab in 2010. There was a list of 230 cases where analysts incorrectly reported or actively misled folks in regards to their findings. There are people who are imprisoned and or have not been pardoned to this day because of these reports. But thankfully, there are also a lot of people who have been exonerated due to the diligence and passion of their attorneys. In our second episode, we provided an amazing link to a video of Greg Taylor and Chris Muma and all of Greg's family in the courtroom getting to hear that Greg was finally going to be free. If you haven't seen it, we suggest you seek it out because that shit is powerful as fuck. Super powerful. Yeah, we love it. It's great. 
He walked out of those doors a free man after serving 17 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Greg was lucky in a number of ways, not just the exoneration, but he was surrounded by family and friends as he walked out of those doors. He holds his daughter's hand as he walks out into the street, looking dazed, his nightmare was over. It's incredible. However, not every exoneration looks like his did. Right. Prior to doing this podcast, I had never considered that there could be anything negative if one were exonerated. Like I'd seen movies, documentaries, docuseries, read, you know, like articles of wrongful convictions. And I presumed, like probably a lot of people do, that the goal is simply to get out of prison. And once out of prison, that goal is achieved and everything's great. Yeah. I really didn't put that much thought into what getting out of prison actually meant, whether wrongfully convicted or not. If I did put any thought into it, I probably thought that an exoneree was going to become a very, very rich person. Because if I were them, I'd be seeing the fuck out of whoever kept me locked up for that long. You get a lawsuit. You get a lawsuit. (laughs) I would be the fucking Oprah of lawsuits. I don't know. I I mean, part of me might be like, they might just, it's better just like avoid anything legal. Yeah. Just go into hiding. Yeah. Yeah. Try to like get off the radar of everyone. I'd live in a cabin and tell, you know, how would you get the money to do that? How would you afford it? Right. Not steal one. Right. Don't steal a cabin, folks. Okay. So I would just figure that all their troubles were basically over when they got out. I would have figured wrong. And that brings us to this week's episode, part one of The Cost is Fucked Up. Around 2015, a man named Lamonte Armstrong, who, since we're not entirely sure if we're pronouncing his name correctly. With this gentleman's name, we don't want to get his first name incorrect and further any sort of harm that he has already gone through. So we're going to use Mr. Armstrong to describe him. Yeah. He ended up suing the city of Greensboro, North Carolina, and three of its former cops. He had spent almost 17 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Not unsimilar to Greg Taylor. It's the usual deal that we're sadly familiar with at this point. On July 12, 1988, Ernestine Compton was found murdered in her home. The crime was publicized on Crime Stoppers, and a police informant called the hotline and said Mr. Armstrong did it. Have you heard of that, Keith? Crime Stoppers? Mm-hmm. You know, like when yeah. people... Okay. Yeah, I'm old. That's nothing to do with your age. Yeah, but that was a show when we were. Yeah, people would call in for tips Mm -hmm. and stuff. (laughs) So it was a pre internet show. Yeah, this is true. So people had to call into tip lines versus like the interwebs. Mm -hmm. Even though the police felt that the informant was a habitual liar, they followed up on the lead. For whatever reason, the informant recanted his statement. We don't know why. But since there was no evidence linking Mr. Armstrong to the murder, the case went cold. By 1992, officers had gotten wind that maybe a guy named Christopher Cavanis was involved in the murder. There was palm and fingerprint evidence at the crime scene, so the SBI crime lab was brought in to see if they could match Cavanis to the prints. But the prints weren't a match. However, they never really let go of the idea that Mr. Armstrong was behind the murder. And the informant decided to change his story yet again and told the cops that he was actually telling the truth this time for realsies. Third time's the charm. (laughs) (laughs) Seems like a real nice... (laughs) Whatever's convenient, right? As with all of these cases, there were other shenanigans as well. But the informant was a star witness in Mr. Armstrong's trial, and in 1995, Mr. Armstrong was convicted. In 2010, the informant recanted his statement again. So speaking of shenanigans, it turns out that the cops had failed to mention that he was paid $200. Oh, convenient. Yeah. In addition to getting a lighter or reduced sentence on another crime that he was involved with. And also, that palm print was run again. Magically, the SBI matched the guy they were initially trying to match, Cavanis. So, great job, team. Nailed it. All right. Mm-hmm. 
And who knows why they didn't match it in 1992, but as it turns out- it didn't out, fit the, the mm, person they were trying to convict. Right. But as it turns allegedly. out- Allegedly. 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 Because right. we, allegedly. Allegedly. we don't know. But, you know- It could just can... be good old-fashioned incompetence. <laughs> could be. Could be. But as it turns out, Cavanis was actually killed in a car crash. So, there's that. Justice. Yeah. So, oh. court- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, no justice could be had. Right. For right. the victim. The victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great job, team. Great job. (laughs) According to a local paper, the Wilson Times, quote, the state crime lab was at fault, but its mistake didn't excuse police who built a shoddy case against Mr. Armstrong. Mr. Armstrong was exonerated in 2012. The next step was to try to get Wait, pardoned. Wait, the, rec- the guy recanted in 2005? Mm. He changed his Oh. Yeah. So, so it still took another two years? Jeez. The system, the process of all this is so slow. It shocks me when I'm reading about all of these cases, like they find evidence that can potentially exonerate somebody yeah. and five years later. Yeah. They like right. that Stay fucking person is still in fucking prison. That's going to be the worst part. Is it like, yeah. it just got proven that you didn't do it and you just still sit there for another five years. Yeah. Like it's not bad enough. You already know that you're innocent, right. but now you know that, that they other know people that you're know. Innocent. Yeah. 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 So Mr. Armstrong was exonerated in 2012. The next step was to try to get pardoned. Because apparently you're not automatically pardoned when you're exonerated. Okay, so I totally have but no that idea makes no sense. about that. Isn't that wild? So, so you, you did, no, Yeah, I had no idea either. Once you've been proven innocent, I didn't know that you needed to then also get a pardon. Yeah. They really make you work for it. Well, what we're going to get into in this episode is there are a lot of next steps that I had no fucking clue yeah. that an exoneree has to go through. Like, not anybody who gets out of prison has to go through these steps. But as we'll find out, an exoneree is not really treated, especially like they don't need to be necessarily, well, I don't, I don't know how to say this, but like parolees have a number of things in place. I mean, not always, but for the most part, mm-hmm. there are systems in place to help them. But for an exoneree, it seems like the, the system yeah. views it as a luxury. Of, right. It's just be know. back out in society, like... Congrats. There yep. you go. You're welcome. Figure yep. it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard because you haven't been a part of society for so long. Exactly. For some of these people for like 17 years. That's mm-hmm. You're not exactly being set up for success. Yeah. So, yeah. So, apparently there's an entire process that you have to go through once you're released, including an application basically to reprove your innocence, even though it's already been proven what? with your exoneration. Mm-hmm. And then you have to wait Who does and that go hope. To? Well, to the governor. It, ultimately, you have to go to the governor's office. Oh, so then it becomes then po- so may, then it becomes political. Then they may or may not approve your pardon. Mm-hmm. But there's a even chance if you're they may innocent. Not. Mm-hmm. So if the governor a pardon like is not you, guaranteed. Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh wait, that's fucked up. <laughs> Good job. I got Good there. Job. Sorry, it took me a minute. Bravo. They're both looking at me. <laughs> Bravo. Thankfully, Mr. Armstrong was pardoned in 2013. So it only took a year. Okay. Yeah. In getting his pardon, that meant that Mr. Armstrong could then apply to get money that the state allocates for eligible exonerees. Because, of course, the money is not automatic. What? Wait, for all his time in? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So, I'm just going to interrupt real quick. One thing that I learned from listening to Ear Hustle is when parolees get out of prison, they're given a card that has $200 on it. And that is for all their time in prison. So it's like, here's $200, go start your life. Just feel like bus fare and like maybe a meal or two. Yeah. Yeah. They did an entire episode on it. It was fucking amazing. I don't remember what it was called. Just listen to the whole thing, people. Just binge listen. 
Yeah. But of course, the money is not automatic. And the amount that an exoneree can receive actually varies from state to state. North Carolina is on the higher end of things, though. So an exoneree can get up to $50,000 for every year that they've spent in prison up to 17 years, which caps out at about $750,000. But then is that taxed? Oh, good question. Probably. That's like winning the lottery. You won seven fifty, but you really only get three. Right. That's a good no clue. We have no idea whether or not somebody that's listening can maybe let us know. Yeah. Yeah. But I bet you're right. I wonder. Because that pissed me off. Can you imagine? Here's all this money, but we're gonna take two thirds of it. Yeah. Wait, but if you receive government money, is that taxable? Is it considered income? Isn't right, because like the a lottery tax technically return? government money, and then they tax well, you. Well, but on it's it. but it but the people we all put in we all put into oh. it. So I think it's a different system. I also just want to point out that Jess did some interesting gesticulations. <laughs> there. Or We're sort of gest- throwing a baseball or gesticulations. Oh, okay. come on, that was good. <laughs> Don't forget to tip your waitress, everyone. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, So we don't know the answer to that question, but it's a good question. It's a really good question. There are people in our country who are are walking around as exonerees who have not been pardoned. But at the same time, if you think about it, why on earth would the state want to, A, admit culpability in the form of a payment, unless they absolutely had to, and B, they don't want to pay someone hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. But luckily, God forbid we be fair to the people that got screwed over. Yeah. That the government screwed over. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, my bad doesn't really, you know, isn't enough. Right. Right. Oops. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Oops should be followed by dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oops oopsie dollars. dollars. Yes. Back up the oopsie truck and <laughs> unload the money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mr. Armstrong was lucky. He received $750,000 from the state. Which is great, because that's going to help ease some things. Mm-hmm. But because there was some serious wrongdoing in his case, in 2015, he was able to file a civil lawsuit against the city and the three cops who were responsible for his wrongful imprisonment. The city provided five local attorneys to represent the cops in the suit. As this suit dragged on into 2016, it was reported that the city had spent over $270,000 in legal fees and other pretrial expenses. Hmm. So that's over a million dollars that the city and state shelled out in this wrongful conviction, which is a fuckload of money to pay for a, quote, mistake. Right. Especially when you find out that the civil suit was settled in 2016 and the city agreed to pay Mr. Armstrong $6.42 million. Which they absolutely should. Yeah, they should have. Yeah. He deserves a life without financial worry, given all the shit that these cops and the SBI put him through. So good on him. 17 years of life to catch up on mm-hmm. right and a lot of us have read about these kinds of cases and the big payout and if you're anything like me you might nod your head when you see those numbers because fuck yeah a wrongfully convicted person who spent decades behind bars for a crime he didn't commit that person absolutely deserves millions of dollars from the people who put him there except there is a problem with that because something i never really considered was where does that money come from In Mr. Armstrong's case, apparently there was private liability insurance for the city that would cover about half of the cost, but $3.15 million would come directly from taxpayers. Mm. In fact, in one article I read, it said that this money was most likely to come out of the people of Greensboro's property taxes, as in we the taxpayers get to pay the price for these fuck-ups. That seems fair. Time to get mad again. (laughs) (laughs) Entering into the mad portion of our (laughs) podcast. So, I did some digging. 
And I found a report written in 2015 by Rebecca Silbert, John Hallway, and Daria Larizade. I'm so sorry if I mispronounced like, your name. I feel like you did a good job with that. Okay, I hope so. You did great work. But I found their report that they wrote with the Berkeley School of Law, and it's called Criminal Injustice. We're focusing on this report from outside of North Carolina because as far as I can tell, it's unprecedented. I definitely want to read more of those. So if anyone knows of reports like this one that are more applicable to North Carolina, head over to our Facebook page or email us. All of that information will be at the end of this episode. But this report about California speaks to what was going on in North Carolina, including shenanigans from a California crime lab. The scope of this report included cases in California where the defendant was convicted of a felony. The conviction was reversed between 1989 and 2012, and the charges were subsequently dismissed or the defendant acquitted on retrial. So they examined 692 cases in total during that time period. 607 of the convictions, which were ultimately reversed, the report revealed, illuminate a dark corner in California's criminal justice system. These 607 individuals spent a total of 2,186 years in custody. They burdened the system with 483 jury trials, 26 mistrials, 16 hung juries, 168 plea bargains, and over 700 appeals and habeas petitions. Many of the individuals subject to these flawed prosecutions filed lawsuits and received settlements as a result of the error, adding to the taxpayer cost. Hmm. Yeah, brutal. Be way cheaper if they just tried them fairly. Right? Yep. So broken down, 58 of those 607 people filed claims asking for compensation. 14 were granted compensation, even though the report notes that all of the 58 people had credible claims. Some were still pending as of the report's publication, but 36 of the legit claims were denied. So that totally fucking sucks. But a total of $5 million was ultimately awarded to the 14 people, a dollar amount that would be astronomically higher cost to taxpayers if all of the 58 people were also awarded compensation. In fact, in looking at the entire 607 cases, the authors estimate that these wrongful convictions cost taxpayers $221 million oh, for prosecution, incarceration, and settlement. The number, they said, was adjusted for inflation. But they did add, this estimate is only a window onto the landscape of possible costs, as it does not include the often unknowable costs suffered by those subjected to these prosecutions. Right. So we're going to break that down even further, that $221 million number which could be used for you know much more important things than mm-hmm. oops sorry here's money you know homelessness yep yeah you know majorly vaccines whatever insert important things here yep after that cherry thought let's get into even more cheeriness oh we're going we're still on the slide down <laughs> oh. that estimate breaks down to 80 million dollars in incarceration costs for time spent in jail or prison, $68 million for- Per person? No, in in this 221. Oh, Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're just estimating this is how it was allocated. Gotcha. Okay. $68 million for trials and appeals, including prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, trial courts, and appellate courts. The $5 million that was awarded to the 14 people who filed claims and an additional $68 million to settle lawsuits brought by these individuals against California counties and cities. 
So the report states that California missed the mark in public safety. Like, guys, this is literally a public safety issue when you think about the fact that these were wrongfully convicted people who spent a collective 2,186 years in prison and jail. And whoever's the, the right. people who, that actually, whoever did, actually it did it is are right. running yeah. amok free as a bird. And the victim's families yeah. and friends and loved ones, they have no answers and like... <clears throat> or thought they had answers and then it's fucking brought that's, up yeah, again. Yeah, that's something like I thought about. It's like you think for 17 years that like, you know, your loved one's Justice. death was like, yeah, that person is in prison, whatever. And then you find out, nope. So it like reopens that wound. Absolutely. That like now it starts it all over again. And it's probably not even reopening. Like it probably is still well, something open. something you never – Yeah, it, that person's no longer around. Yeah. So – This is depressing. Yep. Oh, Drink the wine. There's wine. <laughs> As mentioned, the report covered a total of 692 sample cases. In the initial portion of the report, they focused on 607 of the cases, as we've been talking about, because the remaining cases were all connected, and the report refers to those cases as group exonerations. Group exonerations? Yeah, so like if there were a bunch of people that were involved in a wrongful conviction. Oh, like one case, but it had yeah, multiple... exactly. And those cases account for the other 85. So like oh, we've been talking 600... Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Get your pen and paper out, folks. No, don't do that. Okay, don't do that. Because you're driving. Yeah. Yeah. Concentrate on driving. Keep your eyes on the road. That person's about to break right now. There's lots of potholes because we don't have any fucking money for it because we spent it all on this. (laughs) Get angry. Jesse got a little venom on the the microphone. (laughs) So they account for the other 85 cases in the 692 cases. And according to the report, the most prominent of these was the 2002 Rampart police scandal in Los Angeles. Oh, in which a group of Los Angeles police officers... I know that. And remember that? I moved here in 99. Oh, wow. Before I moved back to... Uh, before I moved to England. Okay. That case was where a group of Los Angeles police officers admitted to falsely arresting or accusing hundreds of mostly Latino residents. 228 individuals received civil settlements for the corrupt misconduct of the Rampart officers. So Los Angeles paid more than $78 million in verdicts and settlements related to that scandal, and total costs related to the scandal and its review have ranged from $125 million to upwards of $1 billion. Holy shit. Ah! The scandal caused the Los Angeles public defender to review upwards of 8,000 cases for error, a huge task required above and beyond their regular caseload. And in an ironic twist, the settlement costs included three $5 million payouts to officers of the LAPD who were wrongfully enmeshed in the scandal and lost their jobs, showing that substantial errors can occur even in the investigation of other errors. So innocent cops got, Mm -hmm. jeez. So messy, so costly. So when these 85 cases are included with the 607 cases that we already discussed, we're talking about 692, quote, individuals subjected to these faulty proceedings who endured hundreds of trials, mistrials, appeals, and habeas petitions, and served more than 2,000 years in prison and jail, as we already mentioned. But what we want to point out here is this is a total cost to California taxpayers of more than $282 million. That's like a wild number. That's so much money. Yeah, think about what so you could do money. with $280 million Ugh. for the city. It's depressing. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So the report states, it is clear that the costs of the police misconduct involved are huge and that even a small number of corrupt police can have a massive direct and indirect economic impact on the criminal justice system. It is equally clear and perhaps equally troubling that after multiple internal and external investigations, we cannot quantify those costs with any certainty. So 282 million could be exponentially higher. Yeah. Right. That's just what's, yeah. Well, it just shows the magnitude that like the domino effect that the fuckery has. So it's like, we've talked a lot about the human impact and like how these people's lives are impacted by the wrongful convictions. But then it's like, when you really break it down and see that the scope is not only affects the wrongfully convicted, but it also affects the community, yeah, the state, the, like the, the cities within it. It's like, and us. Yeah. Like that's the whole People point is nothing to do with it or paying our, our taxes are dedicated to this. Yeah. Not all of them, but right. it's, but like you, the listener, you have paid taxes toward one of these wrongful convictions in your state. Like this impacts you. Like sometimes it's easy to listen to these stories and be like, Oh man, that sucks. And yeah. And then you can walk away and like go make your smoothie or whatever. Right. But the reality is this impacts you. And we so, don't have a say necessarily as right. taxpayers. It's like we give them the money and they do with it what they will. But to know that a portion of what we're giving to the state is going to things like this that could be completely avoided is right. infuriating. Yes. Right. So on that note, the report also says roughly 37,000 Californians each year are caught up in the criminal justice system, but never convicted of anything. It is not known how much of these individuals spend, how much time these individuals spent in custody prior to the dismissal or acquittal. But even if each of them had spent only five days in custody, a number that seems relatively low, these individuals would cost the state over $20 million annually for incarceration alone. Damn. Oof. It is more likely that many of them spent far more than five days in jail before their cases were dismissed. Oh, definitely. Or they were acquitted. Since between 2006 and 2012, the average length of stay in a California jail for individuals who were not sentenced was about 17 days. So that's more than twice the five days, five day estimate that they did. So if each of these 37,000 individuals is spending 17 days in custody each year, the total cost to California taxpayers for their incarceration is over $70 million a year. These numbers, again, are from California. North Carolina and other states will have their own numbers, which may be similar to the report's estimates. It might be less, but it also might be a lot more. Like, it might be really fascinating to watch true crime series and listen to podcasts and such. But at the end of the day, we can turn those things off or put that book down and it doesn't personally impact us. Except that it does. So let's just remember that $3 million of the money that was rightfully awarded to Mr. Armstrong. It was going to be paid for by the taxpayers of North Carolina by an increase in property taxes due to mistakes of the SBI crime lab and law enforcement, which means that those fuck-ups were costly to the individuals of that state. Right. So we looked at California 
but it's going to be similar across the board. Well, what's frustrating is that like the people that did the things are not the ones that are being held accountable and like responsible and things like that. Not that like a crime lab expert can pay someone three million dollars or whatever, but like if they're consistently fucking up or doing things that are basically illegal, they should be losing their jobs. Yeah, not be moved to other places or hidden from public view so people don't know they're still working there. It's just the everyone else is paying for their fuck ups and there's no accountability. Yeah. And if you're not held accountable for your mistakes, you're not, what's the incentive? Yeah. Yeah, To like, Oh, that one cost me 3 million. Is today your first day at this podcast? Because that's what this podcast is. I all know. About. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to. I'm just that. repeating the theme of the podcast for our viewers. <laughs> in case someone new is listening. Viewers are listeners. They can't see anything except for the traffic ahead of them. Please be careful. While driving. Yeah, you guys don't want to see us. I'm in like basically pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing shenanigans. <laughs> listening. I'm wearing listeners, flowery listeners. pants. <laughs> <laughs> Very floral. I feel like we're all appropriately dressed for our personalities. <laughs> I'm homeless. <laughs> all right. Over to Jess. So speaking of mistakes, if you remember, Keith, in episode three, we covered Leslie Lincoln, who lost everything when she was in jail. She had the horses. She lost her house. Yes. She lost everything. Yes. Yeah. When she was wrongfully accused of murdering her mother. Right. So she had been doing great. She was getting her life in order. She had, you know, getting on her feet after going through a divorce. And then someone murdered her mother. And then the SBI crime lab happened. Right. And then Dwayne happened. (laughs) No, it was Brenda Bissett. Leslie was one of two of the people we've covered who were wrongfully charged due to the SBI, but ultimately found not guilty. The other one was Kirk Turner, the wealthy dentist who recently settled a civil suit against the SBI, receiving $200,000 for his troubles. His case probably cost the state and taxpayers way more than that. Yeah. Then there was Greg Taylor, who sued and was awarded $4.6 million from the SBI. Good. Yes. Should have been higher. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 17 years. Yeah. It's no joke. In fact, the News and Observer reported that by 2013, the SBI and its insurers had paid out about $16.4 million in settlements to three innocent men who were exonerated after spending a combined 40 years behind bars or in detention. And those were just the payouts. Yeah. Leslie, on the other hand, hasn't been as fortunate. She tried to sue. Her first lawyer fell asleep at the wheel and time elapsed. She got a second attorney who also took their sweet time doing anything. And now, as her defense lawyer in the criminal case and also her friend, Buddy Connor told Priya the statutes of limitations have simply run out, which fucking sucks. She was never a wealthy woman. She was just your average person. After everything that happened, she hasn't been able to adjust. She suffers from PTSD. She also lives in Section 8 housing. Her brother tried to hold on to her house for her, but it just wasn't financially possible with what she was going through. So this, her entire life has been ruined. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, this is more of a typical experience. Like, oh, sorry, you didn't sue within the two-year window. So bye. Yeah. Yeah. That seems fair. Or whatever time frame it was. Whatever. whatever. Like, yeah. Not only is being wrongfully accused or charged emotionally devastating, it more often than not is also also financially devastating. Yeah. Priya, in her research, found a quote by an exoneree named Jeffrey Deskovic, who spent 16 years in prison in New York for a murder he didn't commit and was ultimately awarded over $13 million. He said, quote, I'd be willing to not only give the money back, I'd be willing to go into debt for that amount of money, maybe even double it, to have had my years back and to have had a normal life. Yeah. Because as it turns out, after spending that amount of time in prison, there's lasting effects starting from the moment before an exoneree walks out of the prison doors. 
which brings us to... Well, I think you'd always be afraid of like the shoe dropping and something happening again. For sure. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot of There are a lot trauma. of lasting yeah. effects. Of course. Yes. I spent 17 years in prison. I don't want to leave my house. Right. And we a lot of people yeah. say that. I mean, like like Priya said earlier, it's like you it's not just, "Oh, you're free. It's all roses and rainbows." Yeah. It's it's uh, pretty I'd be scary. Be like afraid to put myself in any situation. Mm-hmm. And we're going to totally get again. into that. Yeah. 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 So let's circle back to 2012 when Mr. Armstrong was exonerated. We didn't know if he had the dramatic courtroom scene that Greg got. We don't know if he was surrounded by friends and family. We do know that there was about a year between his exoneration and him receiving a decent payout from the state, which is the case for all exonerees, if they're fortunate enough to even be awarded a state payout, let alone win a civil case. For this episode, Priya spoke with Sandra Westervelt and Kim Cook. Sandra is a professor emerita of sociology at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, which is basically a retired professor who is so awesome that she gets to keep the title of professor, even though she's retired. Yay. Yay. And Kim, who is a professor of sociology and criminology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Because little is known about what happens when an exoneree walks out of prison, Sandra and Kim have been dedicating decades to to studying and writing about the post-exoneration process and the exonerees. They met at a conference in 2000 in San Francisco. Sandra was helping organize a panel that included a guy working in that field who they both respected named Mike Radlich. Through their mutual love of this guy and his work, they formed a friendship. Kim refers to Sandra as a pioneer in her work with wrongful convictions. And I think she is absolutely correct, even though Sandra was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you are <laughs> like, awesome. Yeah. No, you're awesome. They're both fucking awesome. Yeah, of course. So circling back to what Priya was talking about at the beginning, about Greg walking out of the courtroom with his family and friends surrounding him. Well, okay. So I certainly never thought beyond the idea that a person who was wrongfully convicted is now out and everything's right with the world as I was talking about. In speaking with Sandra and Kim, I realized that certain other things never occurred to me because I presumed everyone who was exonerated was exonerated in a courtroom, but that's not the case. It's not always that dramatic courtroom scene. Many exonerees are in prison when decisions to exonerate are made. Some are given just a couple of hours notice and that's where logistics comes in, which never occurred to me. Like a prisoner could be given as little as three hours notice that they're going to get out. Great. It's what they've been hoping for. So you're brought to get your belongings. You might get back the clothes you were wearing when you were initially imprisoned. Do they still fit? You may have lost a lot of weight in prison or bulked up or but you have to put them on. Or maybe you have new clothes that somebody sent you. Who knows? You walk out of the doors of that prison and you're free. You don't have a car. Do you have family, friends? You've been behind bars for years, maybe even decades. Your relationships might be strained or non-existent at this point. Life has moved on for everyone outside of your prison cell, just like Keith said in episode one. It used to be that upon leaving prison, you'd be given a bus token so that you could get to where you need to go. But that doesn't happen now, or not a lot. We've talked about Greg being transferred to various prisons. A lot of prisoners are for whatever reason. You could be hours away from where you used to live, from what's familiar. Actually, where do you live? Even if you have a ride, where the fuck are you going? Right. Those initial moments, stepping outside. That's kind of terrifying. Fr- right? You're free. But uh, where do I go? Like, do you even have a map? Yeah. So those initial moments, stepping outside, tasting freedom, that's when reality sets in that you're walking into an entirely new world and you're not even sure if you belong. Mm. That's scary. Mm-hmm. That's scary. Yeah, it's got to be a weird feeling because like, I'm sure you're overjoyed to be outside of the cell and like the gates, but then that's sort of like, uh, now what? Mm -hmm. Right. 
Yeah, when you're exonerated, there are no programs in place that help with these initial stages, the reintegration into society. Which we were sort of discussing uh, earlier. Yeah, because you don't have like a parole officer or anything like that. Like you yeah. don't, you're right. not convicted anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and like Priya was saying before, unlike parolees, wrongfully convicted exonerees are not entitled to the programs that help parolees reintegrate, which makes zero sense. Right. Yeah. But that's that's the way it is. But the programs are set up to help reduce the risk of further crimes. So if they think that you were exonerated, they're like, well, you're fine. You don't need this. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So since the exoneree didn't commit a crime, they don't get the access to those programs. Um, but apparently there used to be a halfway house that helps to transition and helps the exoneree integrate. But throughout the years, such frivolities, that's Sandra and Kim's word, became defunded. There are groups like the Innocence Projects or the Center on Actual Innocence who are more equipped to help the exonerees that they've been working with, but these groups aren't actually working with every exoneree. So it's a very limited scope. Yeah, because not everybody... They can't. They can't work with everyone. Right. It's just not possible. So the exoneree is free, which is fucking awesome, but what's next? I mean, I would call maybe like a Lyft or an Uber, right? But, but the exoneree, yeah, has been cut off from technological advances. Yeah. And anything that's been happening outside the prison, they have no understanding right, of at all. They're not going to give you a phone when you leave. Right. There's no, you don't have an iPhone. You're not going to be able Are to pay like. Are phones still a thing? I, I've seen I don't a few. I, don't, I have seen a few pay phones. I, I would assume outside of prisons, they probably have them. Or they might have phones in like the holding area. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, because like what surprised me, like if somebody let you know. But do you know, you know phone number? Right? Yeah, yeah. So true. Right. Or I mean, if they let you out with only a couple hours notice, like what if the only people you know live six hour drive away? Yeah. Right. Because you don't know where you're going to like be put in prison. Like you're not put into the prison that's like down the street from your house. Right. right. If you get transferred, like you had right. mentioned earlier, it's you never know how far away you are from anything that you once knew. It's very scary. I can imagine it's like a roller coaster of emotions. So the world has completely changed and they have to adapt really, really quickly and learn all of this shit all at once rather than the slow integration into our lives that we've enjoyed on the outside. Pumping gas, self-checkout lines at the grocery store, keyless ignition in cars, ATMs, even just using debit cards. All of this shit is confounding for the exoneree. Learning new names, friends and families have gotten married, had children. After decades of living with a very strict schedule of living inside, monitored, in a setting that serves to dehumanize a human, the idea of having a choice in even the simplest of moments is overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, Kim told me that every exoneree has like some version of PTSD. But when an exoneree is exonerated, what I think Kim or maybe people in that field call it is continued PTSD because it's just continuing to happen because you're faced with all of this shit coming at you. Yeah. Well, because everything's in prison is given to you like three squares a day and things like that. We're like, I have to go to the store and like, what do I, what do I buy? What do I like? What do I right. want? How do exactly. I pay for that? Yeah. So in prison, like you're saying, the inmates are literally institutionalized and dehumanized and prison takes away your ability to make decisions, just like you were saying. And Kim referred to one of the exonerees that she worked with who had a panic attack in the cereal aisle because he didn't know which cereal to choose after years and years of not having a choice. So circling back to what you said in our first episode, Kim echoes your sentiment of time standing still for the prisoner. What she said is that for exonerees, time has literally passed by and it's the closest thing to being a time traveler. And I personally would say it's probably the worst possible way to be a time traveler. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 Well, think about it. I mean, like, 
movie movie connections yeah mm-hmm. that's what i do one day i'm gonna string them all together <laughs> no, but i mean back to the future yeah he went back to the 50s yeah or six 50s 60s whatever and everything was completely foreign to him yeah just do it in reverse someone who's oh, been yeah. stuck in a prison didn't see the internet happen didn't see like mm-hmm. cell phones you know although they may that, have so. access to the internet we're kind of going to get into that in the oh, next okay. episode but it, it's stuff like iPhones or like, I mean, I think I'm going to talk about it later, but maybe I'll just talk about it now. Oh, yeah. I'm going to talk about it in one sentence. Well, I could see the yeah. serial oh. panic because like, I mean, I go to Cheesecake Factory and I panic order because I'm like, there's 18 pages. I don't know what yeah. I want. I like yeah, anything. Of course. Uh, chicken fingers. Yeah. yeah. Like I could see, you could see that if someone's never had the choice. Right. Absolutely. I mean, when self-checkout lanes became a thing. I think I'd just gotten back from England and these stores had these self-checkout lanes. And yeah. I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. And so I like went up really tentatively to like try to use it. And I was like, this is really confusing, but I don't want to ask for help because right. it's embarrassing. Yes. And I like, I don't know what is happening at all. And I refused to use them for a long time right. just because they were so intimidating. Imagine everything that you encounter in your life yeah. being that. Yeah. That's exactly what the exoneree or a parolee is going through. Yeah. Yeah. Even something as little as like being able to walk long distances, like they like they don't most exonerees don't have a lot of stamina because they're usually confined to small spaces. Right. And so you let them out back into society and it's like them having to walk to the store because they probably don't have a car or whatever can can completely exhaust them. A lot of them also like sleep on the floor because they're not used to having certain types of mattresses or any or any mattress or a pillow. It's, yeah. Right. So it's like little things that we take for granted mm-hmm. on the outside. They it's it's completely and, and even though you would think oh it's a luxury and they should be grateful and they would like why aren't they enjoying it? It's so foreign to them and uncomfortable probably. Right, you go to what's they, comforting. Exactly. And little things confuse them like zippers or like doorknobs and latches and things like that that they haven't used in decades. They're used to doors just opening in front of them yeah. or being told where to go and being guided places. Mm-hmm. And all of that's gone. Another exoneree Kim and Sandra spoke with, I had no idea where to sit in a restaurant. Like, should they back against the wall, facing the door? They basically, he told them, how do I do something without telling someone telling me what to do? So again, it goes back to that whole like decision fatigue almost where it's like, or being overwhelmed by the options and not knowing what to do. And like on a very small scale, I can feel that like at work or whatever, you know, I just can't make any more decisions. I actually say that to Sam when I come home from work, he's like, what do you want for dinner? Nope. Yeah. I can't make another decision. Just point me in a direction. So imagine (laughs) that, that feeling, but that's your entire life now. Sandra and Kim cite the Stanford experience as a perfect example of how terrible prison life is. Do you remember that, Keith? You heard of that? This is the one where the students were arbitrarily assigned roles as if they're in a fake prison. Oh, like yeah. some were guards, some were prisoners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Absolute power is corrupted. Right. Sandra and Kim had explained to Priya that prisons are places that demean humanity. They bring out the worst in social relations among people. An exoneree that they interviewed said, hell, you're peeling paint on the wall, rats running around, people getting stabbed every hour of the day. Almost all of the people we've talked about or researched talk about remembering seeing people getting stabbed and the lasting effects of seeing that kind of violence. Remember, these are innocent people that we've been talking right. about. Yeah. But even if the prisoner, prisoner isn't innocent, that shit is horrific and inhumane. And to witness that obviously will have some scarring, lasting oh, effects. Yeah. So some experience debasing and demoralizing abuse themselves. 
And it's no wonder that inmates report problems of depression, helplessness, stress, and extreme loneliness. So the examples of exonerees that we've been focusing on have been living in confinement for decades. They know their prison cell, they get outdoor activity in an enclosed prison yard for very limited amounts of time. When they And when they're exonerated, when they're free, they're suddenly free, and it's completely disorienting. Even their city might appear vastly different after a decade or more yeah. locked away. Um, I mean, I go to my childhood home back in Minnesota, yeah. and I see it, and I'm like, this place looks totally different. Right, exactly. Like, this is new. Like, this, yeah. Yeah. Or, like, stupid shit, like, they put in a roundabout, and you're like, if you've never driven in a roundabout, how do you navigate a fucking roundabout? Okay, did you <laughs> used to live in England? What is going on? <laughs> they have we roundabouts have in Miami now. Yeah, they have. Do they? they have There's one at the end of my mom's street. Yeah. Really? My mom was so confused by it. She tried to turn left. I'm like, no, 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 mom, you just go in a circle. <laughs> and there was, there was an accident where somebody literally just wasn't paying attention and just went right into the roundabout oh. and flew over the top of it. Oh my God, just went straight <laughs> Just went straight through it. That's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ignore this circle. <laughs> Sandra told Priya about a couple of exonerees who've been traveling to speaking engagements and they got lost. Because a lot of these, a lot of people when they get out, they, they publicly speak about their experience right. and they try to enact change. And, you know, they pull over, they start crying. It's just too much. It's overwhelming. Because this is a space issue. It's disorientation. After having lived in confinement for so long, the exonerees get lost very, very easily. Well, and how big the world is is probably real scary. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Definitely. Because, like, you know how to get from your cell to where you eat to where you shower. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. I mean, anything else, you're like, that. yeah, I could see that being terrifying. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, at some point with the, the two exonerees being lost, they had to pull over and then head into a they actually ended up heading into a bank to ask for directions they parked in the parking lot and walked in and it wasn't until they got out of the bank that they realized it was the exact same bank they'd been accused of robbing and killing two people in. oh whoa right so you it just had, like unconsciously like directed yourself to that because mm-hmm. you remembered it never well, occurred to them yeah they never were th- they weren't the ones that did it right so they never connected those dots of like that oh location didn't stick out in their head yeah because they were never there doing the crime they were oh weird yeah. yeah if an exoneree is linked up with an organization like the innocence project and the north carolina center on actual innocence they can get help with paperwork reintegration trying to get the state's compensation right i think we mentioned that yeah the New York Innocence Project even has two social workers that, help, that help exonerees. Which okay. is great. Yeah, yeah, which is awesome. Every, but if you're, everybody should have that. It should be standard practice. Yeah. So, but I assume it's a money thing, but that's not me to say. Mm-hmm. I'm just assuming. Hmm, where could we get the money from? <laughs> oh, I don't know. That $282 million? Mm, just hmm. saying. Hire qualified people. <laughs> We're not scumbags. Yeah. I mean, what we really want to do here on this podcast is put these people out of work. Yeah. It would be amazing to put the Innocence oh Project out of work. And Chris, I'm sorry, we're trying to put you out of work. So that you can spend more time with your family. Exactly. Yes. All right. But yeah, but if, if you're not affiliated, then you're shit out of luck. You don't, you're on your own. Right. Defense attorneys find it challenging for unaffiliated exonerees where the lawyer can suddenly become the social worker, helping them reintegrate, which can get a little bit hairy. Kim and Sandra mentioned that some lawyers get calls. Like, there's one guy who had an exoneree calling them three times a day to figure out how to drive a car. Hmm. So, it's like little things like that. And it's that heartbreaking. It's, you want to help. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you, you're you helping them with their case and you become a friend and it's like they have nobody else to turn to. Yeah. And so, what do you do? Right. Like, 
there needs to be dedicated people for this kind of work mm-hmm. who can handle it. I'm sure it's emotional for the attorney as well. Yeah. yeah. They also bring up the mourning of losses. So losses of loved ones, relationships, time, missed opportunities. And we talked about this in Greg's Greg Taylor's episode, all of the milestones that he missed in 17 years. Mm-hmm. Right. Every exoneree has the same story. Well, yeah. I mean, if you were with somebody when you got arrested, they may have moved on or started mm-hmm. a new family and you're like, well, well, my life got taken away from me. I'm glad you have yours. Right. Yeah. It's I can, whole, I can see me? like loneliness, but also like bitterness and being angry. Absolutely. Yeah. That like, I should be that. I should be with you, not seeing you with someone else and kids and yeah. the life that I don't have anymore. But like, it probably gets even more complicated than that where you see them and you have this resentment and then you're like, but I don't want but them not to not fault. feel bad. Yeah. Like, yeah. And so it like maybe becomes a cycle in your head. You could drive yourself yeah. crazy. And they, and again, they don't have the support to even like, I can't remember if we touched on this or not yet. So forgive me, but they, not only do they not have the like financial support when they get out, they don't have the mental health right. support no- either. So to deal with all of the stuff that they're grappling with, including like coming to terms with their relationships that may or may not be there anymore. Right. Like, you need help with that. But yeah, so missing births, deaths, weddings, getting married themselves, graduations, anniversaries, going out with friends, staying home with a loved one, ordering a pizza, dating, road trips, they've missed an entire life. Right. Oof. Sometimes an exoneree can feel abandoned by their family and friends who ostensibly thought they were guilty, but then with the exoneration, suddenly they're back in their life. They want to know where the family and friends were when it seemed against the odds that the person had committed a potentially vicious crime. Why didn't they believe them in the first place? You know, like, how can they not help but think, like, why didn't you have my back? Yeah. Yeah. Like, how do you not take that personally? That would make me bitter. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people do move on. Yeah. And maybe they did believe the person or whatever. And maybe they just didn't have time to go drive three hours to see this person every Saturday. But you can't blame them, too, because at some point, like, if if they've been convicted of you know, murder and they're in prison for life, you move on with your life. Right. And but at the same time. And, and it's, there's nothing wrong with that also. Of course. So it's like, it's but just. But you can't help your feelings. Of course. No, I was, what I say, it's like, it's heartbreaking on both sides. Because yeah. you can understand why someone cutting out would be bitter, but also you can understand why the person moved on. Right. But it's just sad. Yeah. Right. On all sides. Definitely. It sucks. Yeah. In addition to what Jess was just saying, with attempts at appeals, hearings, anything, you constantly have to prove you're innocent, which we sort of talked about before when we were talking about people who need to try to get pardoned. Nobody believes you because you are here in prison, as we're just talking about, because to most people, the system works. It catches the bad guys. And if you're in here, just like you just said, you are the bad guy. Yeah. Hell, movies and television shows are chock full of cheesy lines from guards, prisoners, lawyers, lines that are delivered with that sort of jaded sarcasm. Yeah, in prison, everyone's innocent. You know, when you have somebody like who's claiming innocence. So by the time the system actually works in the wrongfully convicted's favor, all of this shit has built up in your DNA. And once they've gotten out, as we were just discussing, in addition to the PTSD and the depression, now there's an added bitterness anger and raw feelings of complete injustice yeah well yeah because you're constantly like even if you've been proven innocent there's always people out there that don't believe it and think that like well you're in prison for 17 years you must be a bad person please hold on that sorry 
Well, it's interesting too, because in some of the research, we found that a lot of exonerees grapple with guilt. Like you would think, okay, they're on the outside, they're ready to connect with the people, like their loved ones and whatnot, but they have established, a lot of these people have established relationships on the inside as well. So a lot of them have guilt for leaving their friends behind in prison. So, you know. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. I mean, you get close with some of these people that you spend day in and day out with them. half your life with them. Yeah. And so they experience guilt for maybe like their inability to keep in touch with them, whether it's like, I'm guilty that I'm out here and you're still in there, or maybe it is hard to get back to the prison. Maybe it's like yeah, if you don't too far away or whatnot. But I mean, it, it's just compounding the emotional distress that they're already experiencing. And mm-hmm. feelings of loneliness, because that was like your confidant, and that you right. can't come back and talk to them. And right. you don't know if that person's going to ever get out. Right. And- All of this is just a little bit about what it's like being inside a prison. Like, we're just trying to touch upon it a little bit. Once again, my favorite podcast in the entire world, Ear Hustle, is there for you if you're interested in learning more about what it's like being inside prison. But I do have to tell you one story that they told that really struck me was about this one gentleman. He was a military veteran prior to being imprisoned, and he was granted parole, And that's what they were talking to him about. Like he was getting ready to get out. And he really thought that he wasn't going to miss anybody at San Quentin. Like when he's first talking about it, he's like this tough guy. And he's like, yeah, these jackals or, you know, whatever. Like just sort of kidding around. And it's prison. I'm sure we all get that. Like he's fucking getting out. So like, you know. Mm. But as he kept talking, he kept on mentioning his military background. And then he started to get a little more quiet. And it seemed as though he was alluding to the idea that as he's mentioning his military background, that he and these men in this prison had potentially formed similar bonds as to the bonds that he formed when he was with his military brothers and sisters. It's just sort of a different type of setting. At least that's how I took it. And he said very quietly that he felt in getting paroled in some way, he was leaving these guys behind. And that makes a certain kind of sense. I wondered as I was listening to it, is that the mindset of an exoneree as well? I don't know, but I can presume that there would be similar feelings of a fucked up version of survivor's guilt in leaving behind the guys you were imprisoned with for decades. Right. I got out, but they may never. Yeah. Yeah. And like the whole no man left behind mentality that the military has. It's like. Mm. The thing is, there were a lot of things I had not considered after reading some shocking account of an exoneree being freed. Somehow I just presumed their trauma was over for them and that they'd live a perfect life now. Right. I was a garbage person because this shit an exoneree goes through to reintegrate back into normal life is fucked up. And sometimes people don't make it on the outside. Sometimes exonerees will end up back behind bars. Right. That's why like recidivism rates are so high just because people have trouble coping. But sometimes it's even more fucked up than that. Because they didn't do anything initially. We'll be exploring more of the fucked up after effects of being wrongfully imprisoned, the cost, the incentives to keep people behind bars, and another fucked up case next week in part two, The Cost is Fucked Up. Hey everyone, we just wanted to give you an update about Lamonte Armstrong. When we first recorded this episode a little while ago, we were trying to be respectful of Mr. Armstrong's first name and not mispronounce it. We found out recently that the people who knew him best called him L.A., One of those people was Kim Cook. She posted about him very recently because, tragically, a couple of weeks ago, as of this airing, he passed away from cancer. We reached out to Kim to ask what she'd like to say, and she gave us permission to read here what she'd written on social media. Here it is. There's a deep sadness in my heart today. My friend L.A. has passed away. 
It seems like I've known him for a long time, and I don't recall exactly when we first met. We hit it off right away. Every time he came to Wilmington, we would meet up for a visit. We often enjoyed seeing each other at the Innocence Network conferences, and he bought me funny gifts, like a New York Yankees jacket. I'm a Boston Red Sox gal. And he always made me laugh. We both joined the Board of Directors of Healing Justice before it was publicly launched. Please join me in donating to his beloved Healing Justice in his memory. Thanks. So this week, we'd love for you, our listeners, if you have any money to spare, to go to the Healing Justice site where LA was a founding member and give them a little something. You can find them at healingjusticeproject.org. And if you go to their Board of Directors page, you can find the face to the name and learn a little bit about how great LA was. Thank you. And as always, we'd love for you to join us on our social media, where we'll be posting links to our research, photos, and videos on our Facebook page. You can find us on all platforms, Facebook, Insta, and Twitter at Podcast. that's E-F-F-E-D-U-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you need to reach us via email, it's the same deal, Podcast at gmail.com. And finally, we don't like to shill for ourselves, but this podcast isn't about us. Fucked Up or Effed Up is about helping other people, but in order to do that, we need to get the word out. So if you have a moment to spare, please rate us on whatever app you use to listen to us. It will help us become more visible and help us elevate the voices of the victims and survivors who have been impacted. If you have more than a moment and want to help us get the word out, please tell people, share links. The more people know about these injustices, the more changes that can be made. Let's create a fucking social injustice league and change the fucked up world. Effed up. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Done. Effed Up is executive produced by myself, Priya Hubbard, and Jessica Borges. Research and story is by me, Priya Hubbard. Executive Inquisitor is Keith Burke. Episode recaps written by Brandy Abbott. Social media hall monitors, Brandy Abbott and Paloma Diaz. Cover art is by Allie Kelly. You can find her work at Allie Kelly Illustrations on Instagram. That's A-L-L-I-E-K-E-L-L-E-Y Illustrations on Instagram. Our music is composed by Allegra Borges. Executive in charge of support, Jeff Berg. Technical consultant, Randy Maringer of Maringer and Unger. On-air distractions provided by Nima and Newman, a.k.a. Newman. Additional investigations are provided by cat detectives Monsieur Hercule Poirot and Captain Hastings. Special thanks to Sandra Westervelt and Kim Cook. Science, science, whoop, whoop. Science, science, whoop, whoop. Science, science, whoop, whoop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's that show on the road. <laughs> All right, that's for sure going at the end of this episode. That was pick up for the end right now.